All right, listen, guys, I get it. Many of you are unable to financially support this ministry because you're spending your cash and your lives on raising young children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Praise God for you and that endeavor. However, algorithms are a thing. Shadow banning, sadly, is a thing. And one major way that you can help to expand the reach and effectiveness of this ministry that doesn't cost you a dime is by spending just a few moments leaving us a five-star review. Also, perhaps even more effective than that, you can share our podcast with a friend. We hope you'll take the time to do so. Thank you so much. God bless. Today we're continuing with our sermon series through the book of Joshua. Our text for today is Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Again, that's Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Would you join me now in standing for the reading of God's word? I'll read our text in its entirety. When I finish reading the text, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, at which point I would appreciate very much if you would respond by saying, thanks be to God. One final time, our text for today is Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. The Bible says this, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is the word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. The three points that I want to make today, simple but important nonetheless. Number one is this, the Lord is dressed for battle. The Lord is dressed for battle. Secondly, the Lord is on our side. He is not neutral. He is on our side. Lastly, The church is militant. The church on earth, you and I who are in Christ in this life, until we breathe our last and go to be present with the Lord in heaven, here on earth, the church is militant. It is at war. First, the Lord is dressed for battle. In your notes, I've written the following. This man who was standing before Joshua with his sword drawn in his hand was clearly no mere man nor was he merely a created angel in human form. Instead, he was undoubtedly a divine person, physically manifest in the form of a man. Therefore, this is no one less than the Son of God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ manifested as a theophany. This reality is further clarified by the fact that Joshua paid homage and even worship unto him by calling him Lord and by acknowledging that the ground on which he stood was holy. John Gill, the late great Baptist who preached in the very same church 100 years prior to Charles Spurgeon, in commentating on our text today, says the following, Joshua gave him religious worship and adoration, which had he been a created angel, he would not have given to him nor would such a one have received it. If this was an angel, when Joshua fell on his face and began to worship him, the angel would have told him to stop. 
If this was merely a man, the man might have received, being sinful, chosen to receive praise and worship from another man. But Joshua would have picked up on this and would not have offered worship. So if this was a mere man, Joshua would not have worshipped. If it was a mere angel, the angel would not have received Joshua's worship. Rather, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in terms of chronological order, this is before the cross. This is before the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, before the incarnation. But Jesus did not come into existence at the point of the incarnation. He is the eternal Son of God eternally begotten. There is never a time in which the Son was not. The Gospel of John in the opening chapter says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So before the incarnation took place, before Jesus was born of the woman, born of Mary, Jesus eternally existed as the Father and as the Spirit, as a most pure spirit without body, parts, or passions, equally divine to the Father and the Spirit, equally worthy of worship, honor, and praise as to the Father and the Spirit. Before Jesus took on flesh, He still existed. He is not made. He is not created. Rather, He is eternally begotten. Now that said, Jesus did appear in the Old Testament before literally taking on a second nature, namely the human nature, taking on flesh and the incarnation. Jesus still had not yet been incarnate, had not yet taken on physical flesh, a second nature, the human nature, but he still physically was manifest, revealed himself to Old Testament saints. He still appeared at various times to individuals such as Abraham. Or we would also argue that Jesus appeared in Nebuchadnezzar's fire, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they would not bow the knee to the civil magistrate, they were thrown into the fire as punishment. And yet the servants of Nebuchadnezzar said, how many men did you throw into the fire? Was it not three? And yet there is a fourth with his face shining as though he is the Son of Man. The Son of Man being the most popular and frequent title that Jesus used even for himself. Son of Man not saying that he's not divine. Oh, I'm not the Son of God. I'm merely the Son of Man. No. Son of Man is picking up on the words and phrasing of Ezekiel, the prophet, that talked about the promised Messiah, the Christ, who was the Son of Man. And that is implied also the Son of God. So what we find in the Old Testament before, in chronological timeline, before the incarnation, before Jesus took on flesh, Jesus still at various times appeared as though in human form. And this theological term for such an occasion is theophany. This was a theophany. Jesus appearing in this case, to Joshua. I personally believe, and many other biblical scholars would agree, that when God walked with Adam and Eve before sin entered the world, which, as we saw last week, did not take very long, but during this brief moment of God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day, I believe that this, too, was the second member of the Godhead, namely Jesus Christ the Son, 
pre-incarnation, but in human form, a theophany. A theophany of Jesus walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And so we have not a man, not an angel, but the Lord Jesus Christ standing before Joshua and announcing himself as the true and rightful commander of the armies of God, the armies of the living God, both heavenly armies, legions of angels that Jesus himself says in his earthly ministry that if I wanted to, I could call down a legion of angels and decimate Rome and Israel for that matter if I wanted to in a moment. Jesus is the commander of angelic armies, but he is also the commander of his people on earth. His people at this time in this gospel age being Israel, that is true Israel, Israel according to the promise, the church, you and I. And in the Old Testament, he is the commander of angelic hosts and armies, but also armies on earth being Israel according to the flesh under the old covenant of which Joshua is a general in that army. So Joshua in the earthly sense is the general of the armies of the Lord, human armies, namely Israel, the nation state. And yet standing above Joshua is a greater general, the ultimate general, the true and rightful commander, the Lord Jesus Christ. You might compare it as an analogy to the Chronicles of Narnia. That you have Peter, the high king, and he truly is king of Narnia. He is king seated at Caraparavel. There are two kings and two queens in this instance in the golden age of Narnia. But Peter is high king above Edmund the just. Peter is the true and rightful king of all of Narnia. And yet there is still an ultimate king above him. The lion, the great lion. Aslan. And when Aslan comes on the scene, it is not just Narnians, dwarfs and centaurs that fall before him, but Peter himself would pay homage. In the same way, Joshua is the successor of Moses. He is the highest standing human officer in all of Israel. He is the rightful and true general of the armies of the Lord here on earth at that time, namely the nation state of Israel. And yet, even though Joshua is the highest human officer in the land, he is the general of the armies of Israel, there is an ultimate general above him who has authority both over angelic armies and armies here on earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has now appeared to him. So who is this? It is Jesus. And Jesus comes to him, not dressed for some kind of banquet or ball, but rather he is dressed for battle. He's not only dressed and prepared for battle by having his weaponry on his person, a sword in his scabbard at his side, but the text says that the sword is actually in his hand and drawn. So he's not only girded for battle, but he's in a battle stance. He's not only prepared, but he is ready at that very moment to wage war. And this is why Joshua asked the question, are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you for us 
or against us. It would be one thing for the Lord Jesus to appear to Joshua dressed for battle to wage war against their adversaries with his sword in that moment in its scabbard, tucked away. But he comes with his finger on the trigger, so to speak. He's not just armed, he's at the ready. The safety is off, which is why it's a legitimate question to ask on Joshua's part. Wait a second. Clearly you're here for war, but you're so ready at a moment's notice to wage war. I have to ask, are you here to fight me right now in this very moment? But Jesus comforts and consoles Joshua by answering his question, not with the word neither, as many pietist, impotent, cowardly, effeminate evangelicals would insist, but rather, he answers the question by saying, no. You want to talk about Bible mythbusters. You want to talk about misinterpreted verses in the Bible time and time and time again. Here's one for you. Joshua says, are you on our side or are you with our adversaries? And every evangelical wants to answer the question by saying, well, the answer is neither. Right? Because at the end of the day, that's really the character and heart of God. If you want to understand God, this is all you need to understand. God is fiercely committed to neutrality. Said the Bible, never. The answer is not neither. The answer is no. And every serious theologian and biblical commentator in looking at this particular text says that the no is in reference not to both parts of Joshua's question, but merely the latter. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? It's two questions, technically. And the Lord Jesus is answering the most recent of those two questions, namely the second question or the latter portion, latter half of this one question if you want to treat it as a whole. So what he's saying is this, not neither, but no. No meaning, no, I am not for the godless Canaanites. No, I am not here to reinforce your enemies. No. In a sense, what he's saying is, I am with you. And brothers and sisters, that is the Lord's answer. It was his answer then, and it is still his answer today. The Lord is for you. He is not for the pagans. The Bible doesn't just say that God hates sin. The Bible says he hates sinners. And in his mercy, God chooses at times, according to what he decrees, to take some sinners like you and to change your heart to make you a saint. Praise be to God. That is one way that God overcomes his enemies. That is one way that God decimates his adversaries. Is that he melts their hearts. He causes them to have a new disposition. He causes them to become new creatures in Christ Jesus. And he grants to them the gifts of faith and repentance. That the God that we once hated now is the God that we love and serve. Praise God. 
But that is not the only tool at his disposal. God uses grace, but God also utilizes justice. Ephesians chapter 1 repeats the phrase three times throughout this single chapter to the praise of his glorious grace. And the principle that's articulated in this first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is that we were enemies, but God predestined us in Christ Jesus. That he overcome our hostility. He changes our nature. He called us and chose us in the beloved. And he did this to the praise of his glorious grace. So God saves sinners to make himself look glorious. But it is also true, by way of implication, if not even hermeneutically necessary inference from Ephesians 1, cross-reference taken with a whole biblical theology, the entirety of the book of Romans, certainly, that God saves sinners to the praise of his glorious grace, and God damns sinners to the praise of his glorious justice. He does both. Both. That hell speaks a magnitude about the glory of God. Heaven displays God's glory. Hell displays God's glory. God is just and God is good in both instances. In both instances. A Christian, God has enemies. The question for the church today is, why don't you? I'll say that again. Christian, God has enemies. The question for the church is, why don't you? Oh, there are really only two answers to that question. One, and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, that you will be able to conclude and ascertain from this first option I'll lay before you that this is not a good option, that it's radically presumptuous, arrogant, and prideful. But the first option is this, that God has enemies, but his people, the church, do not have enemies because somehow the followers of Jesus are better at being committed to the truth and loving people than Jesus himself was. Again, that's the option that's arrogant and presumptuous. That's the wrong answer. Now, nobody will actually verbalize that. Nobody will come right out and say it. But that is the logical conclusion of many evangelicals today. The enemies of Christ, they killed him. But the reason why they, they love his followers is because... We've sold out on truth. No, 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 no. No, it's just because we're fiercely committed without an ounce of compromise to all the truth and principles and law, word of God, and yet also more winsome than Jesus? No. Woe to you, Christians, when the New York Times will publish your articles. Woe to you, evangelical. When you're condemning Uganda for simply advocating for God's law. 
Black laws matter. Uganda forever. Uh, the reality is that God's law matters. And any nation that will adhere to God's law over time will be exalted. Now, some of you watched the interview that I did with Vodi Bakum a while back. He talks about the distinctly Christian preamble that was recently adopted to the Constitution in Zambia. But then contrasting that with the Christian heritage that we have here in America. The Christian heritage is better. But it's better only today. It's only better today. Because if you turn your back on the Lord Jesus Christ, well, the heritage will be there for a while, but eventually it will dry up. Now, why, why can a generation of people completely and publicly and explicitly rebel against God and still reap His blessings? It's not just because of God's mercy, His long-suffering, the fact that He's slow to anger and abundant in love. That's part of it. But it's also because God is just. The reason why a generation of people can forsake the Lord and still receive his benefits is because God is merciful, but also because he's just. What do I mean by him being just? You might say, if you're rebelling against the Lord, the just thing would be for you to reap the consequences. But not, however, if God promised prior generations that he would be faithful to their children. And now it becomes not only a matter of God's mercy and kindness, but his justice. Remember, the scripture says God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. If one generation sows and works and plants an entire apple orchard, well, you'll be able to eat the fruit of those trees for a little while. That's not God actually uh, saying, hey, I don't really care about justice. I don't really care about holiness. You can make light of my law. You can make light of my precepts and you'll still receive good things. No, that's not God honoring the generation that's rebelling, that refuses to plant, that refuses to tend the orchard. That's simply God not being mocked, keeping with his promise that a man will reap what he sows. It is God keeping in faithfulness and justice to the prior generation. To the prior generation. That's what it means for a nation to have a Christian heritage. The heritage of the Christian faith is so deep in our nation that it will take a few generations, even generations of, of utter rebellion against God. It will still require a few generations for that heritage to completely dry up. Without tending the orchard at all, there will still be apples because that orchard is so strong and so deep and so many trees in the past were planted and tended well. There will be apples for multiple generations and there will be multiple generations of people getting to enjoy apples while hating orchards. And that doesn't just speak to the mercy of God because those who hate orchards certainly don't deserve to have apples. So it is merciful, but it's not just the mercy of God. It speaks to the justice of God. That God doesn't just come in and burn up the orchard at the first sign of rebellion. That the hard work of faithfulness in past generations will continue to last until it dries up. 
And so in that sense, the heritage, the Christian heritage of America supersedes a Christian preamble in Zambia. Today, you would rather be here, even as the White House is lit up with the pride flag colors. Better to live here than to live in Zambia. My point, though, is to say, give it 200 years. Zambia is planting apple trees. And apple trees take a while to grow. So no, there's not a lot of apples there. Not today. But if we stick with our path here, and by God's grace they stick with theirs over there, then in 200 years, well, that's why. Right now, it's, you, know, you kind of you know, cast your bread seven times on the water, not knowing which will return. Right? There's, there's a biblical principle for diversifying when it comes to investments. So I, I, you know, I was going to have the grandchildren Zambia fund, saving for that just in case. Well, now it's going to be, you know, 50-50 between, you know, the Zambia and Uganda fund, right? Because both are great options. Not today, but they have a lot of promise, a lot of potential. Because at the end of the day, God's word is true. The nation that fears the Lord will be exalted. Doesn't, doesn't matter what color their skin is. The only reason why the West has been blessed by God is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that took root all the way from King Alfred till today. And God can do it with anyone he wants. In fact, that's what we see in the scripture is that sometimes what the Lord will do in order to bring low the haughty, the proud, is that the Lord will actually raise up someone else, someone who is a nobody, just to show that it's not about the man. It's not about the people. It's not about the nation. It's about the Lord. It's about the Lord. Sometimes God will do it, not even with another people, but sometimes God will, just to prove his point, to show that he can garnish glory for himself with inanimate objects. And if you don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. One, because God will receive praise, one way or another. But two, the rocks would cry out as an indictment of God's image-bearing creatures who chose to rebel. Are we for God or against Him? He's for us, so long as we remain faithful. The question, though, is are we for Him? So all of this back to enemies. God has enemies. But a lot of Christians today don't. And they don't have enemies not because they're actually gracious or kind or merciful or winsome or strategic or shrewd. The reason why today's Christians, especially here in the West, don't have enemies is because we don't look like Jesus. We don't look like Jesus. There's just not that much to hate. And there's also not that much that is a threat. 
Jesus was put to death, but he wasn't put to death because he was viewed as someone who was insane or crazy, a man who merely lost his mind. Jesus was put to death because he was viewed as a legitimate threat. And not just a threat, strictly in an academic, philosophical sense. He wasn't merely a threat to the way that people think. He was a threat in the physical, literal sense to the way in which people lived. There's a reason why Pilate was very concerned about Jesus being called a king. There's a reason why Herod tried to kill Jesus when he was still just an infant. Not because merely a Messiah had been born, but a king had been born. Herod understood more about the coming of Christ and what it meant than Russell Moore does. Herod knew that the coming of Jesus didn't just mean that people would worship him privately in their sweet, precious little hearts in the 17th dimension. Herod knew that Jesus coming to earth, not only as spiritual Messiah, but as earthly, literal king, that what this meant was that eventually all the kings of the earth would be subdued by him and subjected to him. He's king of kings, lord of lords. Yeah, they killed Jesus. And the apostles were killed as well. And Christians were drawn and quartered, some sawn in two, beheaded, even crucified, upside down, thrown into the lion's den before lions in the Colosseum. All these things were done in the first century. And some of these things are still done to this day but not like the first century. To pretend that things have not changed is naive. To say we lose down here from a microphone while being recorded with video, piped to millions of people on the other side of the planet who are being converted by the Spirit of God is such a thick irony. I can't even begin to put it into words. To lose, as you've written commentaries that millions of people have read, as you have a showdown with the governor of your state and win. I pray that if God would be so gracious that he might enable me to lose half as well as MacArthur. Incredible losing. I would love to lose like that. No, we win. We win. The world is changing. And it's not all for the worse. Some of us will lose our lives. Some of us may be martyrs. Some of us may be thrown in prison. And we may not see all the particular victories in particular battles that we'd like to see in our lifetime. But the gospel continues to pervade. The crown rights of King Jesus are continually pressed forth over all the earth. Jesus has enemies, but one by one they're being subjected 
as a footstool under his feet. Many of his enemies have already been conquered and many more are still left to be conquered. God is for us. That is not a question that's left open-ended in our text today. But the question that each of us must answer is whether or not we're for him. Jesus in a theophany appears to Joshua as the true commander of Israel and even the armies of heaven. And he shows up with a sword drawn in his hand. And his answer to Joshua, are you for our adversaries? The answer is no. No. But Jesus is for us. And it's not just Jesus meek and mild. But Jesus dressed for war. And he is for his church and for his people. But the question remains, are we for him? Will we take a stand? Will we speak the truth? And I, I think one of the reasons why we don't, and this gets to the last point of the text today, one of the reasons why we don't take a stand is because we don't fear God. Not nearly as much as we fear man. One of the things that happens here with Joshua, remember, because I, I think I, I said something in passing last week that mixed up the chronological order of the narrative through the book of Joshua. So let me correct that today. This is right before they're going to go up against Jericho. So far, God has parted the Jordan River, and we saw a portion of the Jericho story, but that's because the spies were sent out ahead of time and had a discourse with Rahab. But the battle at Jericho has not yet commenced, but it's about to. And so where we are right now in the book of Joshua is that Israel has just passed over the Jordan River miraculously, and they've just renewed the covenant with the Lord through circumcision and eating the Passover, They've just now stepped into the land of promise, so the manna has ceased. They're now able to have grain and storehouses, namely the storehouses of the wicked. As they conquer these cities, the wealth of the wicked will be laid up for the righteous. They too will plant and grow their own grain, but they don't have to wait for a harvest. They can have food right now by simply following the Lord Jesus in obedience and conquering their adversaries and taking what they have stored up. So all these things have taken place. It's right before the battle with Jericho. And it's likely that even though the Lord has been so faithful thus far, and he's demonstrated and manifest his supernatural power in the parting of the Jordan River, even though he supernaturally sustained his people the last 40 years, as they journeyed through the wilderness, Joshua and Israel is still probably at some level wrestling with doubt because Jericho is a fortified city, a juggernaut, indeed a great threat. And so Jesus appears to Joshua and he appears to console him, to comfort him, and to comfort him through fear. Joshua was probably concerned, how is this going to happen? How are we ever going to be able to conquer Jericho? But when Jesus appears, 
Joshua's not worried about conquering Jericho anymore. Joshua is worried about the greatest adversary, potential adversary he's ever witnessed, namely Jesus, who's standing right in front of him. He's like, forget about Jericho. Are you against me? Are you coming to battle me? Because if so, I'm in really big trouble. Jericho is a small threat by comparison to you. The commander of all the armies of earth and armies of heaven. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Essentially what Joshua is asking is this. He's saying, I no longer need to consider the variables of who's stronger. Who has the advantage, Israel or Jericho? Because, because a variable has just entered the equation that's so massive that all that matters now is this third party and whose side they're on, right? If, even if Joshua in his mind was thinking Israel is like, like an inch and Jericho is a foot, Israel is the strength of 10 men, but, but Jericho is the strength of 100. Well, when Jesus walks into the equation, the 10 versus 100 is inconsequential now. It no longer matters, right? It's, it's like if you ever play, you know, on like a family vacation. And it's never fair, I might add. The rules don't make any logical sense whatsoever. I've been told again and again, it's just about spending time together. So that's something I've had to come to terms with. But you're playing like a game, like categories or something like that. It's like, you get a point, you get a point, you get a point, you get a point. And now all of a sudden, you know, it's like 10 to three. All right, bonus round. And the next question is worth 10 trillion points. You're like, then what have we been doing this whole time? 10 trillion? Like, like what kind of, like what math did you learn? What scale is this? You've, you've just rendered the last two hours as completely irrelevant. I don't understand, right? Well, again, the point in that scenario is to spend time to, with one another. The point is also to pity the weak, to pity the weak. It's the equivalent of passing out, you know, participation trophies. Okay, so these things happen. It's a part of life. But it is a good illustration for the scenario of what's going down with Jericho versus Israel, Joshua being confronted by Jesus. Right? Jericho has got 10 points on the board. Israel's got, well, they had zero, but then, you know, the Jordan River parted, and now we'll say that's 2.5. It's 10 to 2.5. But then the bonus round starts. Jesus walks in. He's worth an infinite amount of points. So all that matters for winning the game at this point is whose side is Jesus on? Better to be, as Athanasius once said, you and God versus the whole world than you and the whole world against God. You got to play the right odds. It's helpful to put things into biblical perspective. Everybody being on your side, being seated in the the chief seats in the marketplace, receiving the honor and accolades of men 
At the end of the day, none of these things matter. What matters in terms of winning the war, not just a particular battle at a particular time, in a particular place, but winning the war, all that matters is whether or not the Lord is on your side. Because he wins. And he doesn't just win suddenly and cataclysmically and spiritually, but he wins gradually and progressively and tangibly. And we may not get to see all of those winds and our brief vapor of life here on earth. But he does win. He does conquer. Yes, he died. He was crucified. But Jesus himself said, unless a seed dies and is planted in the ground, it cannot come to life. It cannot grow. Jesus died as a seed dies. He was buried as a seed is buried under dirt. But that's not the end of the story. It's not the end. The end of the story is not that Jesus died and was buried so that we know that in following Jesus, we can expect to have the same results that he did. No, Jesus chose to die, even though he didn't have to. Jesus was buried so that like a seed, he might sprout and multiply other seeds all over the earth so that eventually the tree might cover the whole face of the earth, that the glory of God would fill the whole earth as the waters cover the sea, like leaven working through a whole batch of dough. The Lord is on our side. We're not sovereign. He wins, and he wins tangibly. And he wins progressively. And he doesn't win despite the church. He will win through his church. His militant church here on earth. That said, we don't know every battle he'll win, how he'll win, when he'll win. We've seen these last 2,000 years that one of the ways Jesus wins is it will take two steps backward and then three forward. And then five steps backward. And then six or seven forward. And then another step forward and another step forward and another step forward. And then 500 steps backward. But then 700 steps forward. And there's no biblical promise for America. I, I don't know what God's going to do. But in terms of is it possible that God would win the world to himself progressively, gradually, over time. And one of the ways he would do it is by proving to all the nations of the earth that his glory and majesty and the blessings of his law that flow from Mount Zion have nothing to do with anything inherent to man. And that he would prove this point by decimating the West. And in order to rouse a godly jealousy in us, that for the next 500 years or 1,500 years that he would bless Africa? That they would send a dollar a day so that a little white kid in America could get a Christian education? It's possible. America's not promised anything. 
all God's promises for this nation and every other nation for that matter are conditional. The new covenant is not conditional. It's grace. But we're not talking about the new covenant. The nation that fears the Lord will be exalted. The nation that rebels against the Lord will be brought low. There were promises for Israel under the old covenant. God fulfilled them all. And Israel was faithless. And the covenant is over. There are promises for the church made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And those endure forever. Those are the true promises for true Israel according to the promise. But in terms of promises for Zambia or Uganda or England or America, unconditional promises for these nations do not exist. If you kiss the sun, his anger will be satiated and his blessings will flow. If you rebel against the sun and seek to break the bonds apart, he who sits in the heavens will laugh and hold you in derision. That's it. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is the bonus round. Is Jesus for us or against us? He is for us. We have that promise in his word. Paul says, the angels or demons, things present or things to come, heights or depths, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That if God is for us, who can be against us? But the question again remains, are we for him? Will we stand for him? And the last thing that I'll say is this. You've heard of gospel-centered preaching. Gospel-centered preaching is a biblical preaching. It's a blessing to be sure. But there is also such a thing as hell-centered preaching. Hell-centered preaching in our generation has been radically underestimated. Jonathan Edwards made use of it from time to time. And it was highly effective. Leaving call marks in the back of the pews. People were so scared. They were clutching on for dear life, trying to make it through the sermon. And many were brought to faith in Jesus Christ. That infamous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And what we find throughout the scripture, both in the Old and New Testament for that matter, is that God, he promises incredible blessings to those who fear him, who trust and obey. But God, in his love, also threatens terrible things to those who rebel. And both the threatening of his judgment and the promise of his blessing are two incentives that bring people to faithfulness. And when it comes to not fearing man, I think that's the biggest thing that I want you to see in our text today. Joshua, when Jesus is standing in front of him with a sword in his hand, Joshua is no longer worrying about Jericho. He's only afraid, only concerned about God. Jesus standing in front of him, are you for us or are you for our enemies? So how do we stop fearing men? Well, this is where Jesus answers the question by preaching a hell-centered sermon. We might have wanted a gospel-centered sermon, but he gives us a hell-centered sermon, a powerful sermon nonetheless. 
Do not fear man who can kill the body, but after having killed the body can do nothing more to you, but rather fear God who sent his only son to die. No, fear God who can destroy the body and after having destroyed the body, cast your soul into hell. Powerfully motivating preaching. Jesus is a fantastic preacher. It's a good sermon. Why do we fear God? Well, we fear him on two accounts. One, because he did send his son to die for us. He's better. He's better than our adversaries who hold out to us promises, but then always betray. Promise, but never deliver. God is not a crooked and corrupt politician. He always delivers what he promises. So we should submit to him and fear him because he's good. But we also should fear him because he is terrible in his judgments. And whatever adversaries we have on earth with man, they can only do so much harm to us. But God not only has power over the body, but also the soul. He is the greater adversary. We can take on the whole world, but we can't take on him. Fighting against God, even if you have 8.2 billion people aligned and unity in your ranks, is no more promising than a gnat trying to fly through Niagara Falls. He is impossible to defeat. No one can thwart his plans. It should matter more to Christians to have God in our corner than the New York Times. It should matter more to Christians to have God in our corner than the LGBT, LMNOP, homo jihad. It should matter to Christians more that we have God in our corner than any man. God is to be feared. God alone is to be feared. He is jealous for his glory. That means he is jealous for our devotion, both in our love of him and in our fear of him. He is not a neutral God. He is not a passive God. He is the Lord dressed for battle. As John Gill goes further to say, I don't have time to read it, but his sword has been drawn ever since the serpent slithered up in the garden. He promised to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And from that day, not just in the times of the Old Testament or the days of Joshua and Israel, but all the way up until this very hour, the Lord has been dressed for battle and his sword is in his hand and his church as soldiers in his army here on earth is militant. We are in a time of war, not peace. And all that matters at the end of the day is that we remain faithful to our great commander in chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. All that matters is the bonus round. Is Jesus for us or against us? 
He has promised that he is not neutral. He is for all those who are for him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is meek and mild. He is the lamb who was slain. But he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the great warrior dressed for battle. And that through his church here on earth, that he is one by one subduing his enemies. We don't know what the future has for us in this place and in this hour. But we know the outcome of the war. And our job is not to predict the outcome of every instance, but simply to be faithful to what you have revealed in your word. To be obedient, not crafty, but obedient. We don't need to partner with people who hate you. We don't need the L and G and B to take down the T and Q and plus. We don't cast out darkness with a slightly lighter shade of darkness. What absurdity. What foolishness. Help us to remain uncompromising. Help us to remain devoted to you and your law. Equal weights, equal measures. Let justice flow. Not half justice and half wickedness. Not taking bribes, not showing partiality. Not delaying justice. Let us stand for what's right. Even if in a practical sense, it seems as though it'll never work. Open our eyes like the servant of Elisha whose eyes were opened to see that there were heavenly armies surrounded, that we actually outnumber our adversaries when we take Christ into account. We're not in a position where we have to concede. We don't have to write treaties. We don't have to wave the white flag of surrender. We're not outnumbered. We never have been. We have the great equalizer. We have the great variable that determines the outcome of every battle. We have the Lord Jesus Christ on our side. Help us not to betray him. Help us to remain faithful. Open our eyes. Give us faith. Give us courage for your glory and for the good of those you're saving. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I be frank with you for just a second right here at the end? Look, some of you guys, you're financially supporting this ministry, and from the bottom of my heart, I say thank you. I cannot thank you enough. However, some of you, you just you can't afford it. In fact, some of you, you shouldn't afford it. Let's be honest. I mean, we're living in Joe Biden's ridiculous economy. Our nation and our totalitarian political elites lost their minds over the last three years due to COVID. 
We have written checks that we simply cannot cash. It doesn't matter if people change the definition of a recession. We are living in a recession right now regardless. Some of you are struggling to afford a carton of eggs at the grocery store. You cannot support financially this ministry at this time, nor should you. But you could still help us tremendously. I am asking you, please, if you're willing to do so, Take one minute of your time. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, whatever that might be. This is the way the system works. We want to be innocent as doves, but shrewd as vipers. We need to be strategic. You leave us a five-star review, and our podcast shows up for more people. And the Word of God and courageous theology applied in practical ways to every realm of life gets out there. Help us get it out there. Thanks for tuning in.